Take your Bibles and turn to Colossians chapter 3 with me. Those of you that remember the old Peanuts comic strip, recall that Lucy often had her psychological booth set up where she'd give advice for a nickel. And uh, usually she was talking to Charlie Brown, and she was doing that again this time. And she said, Charlie, in, in the cruise ship of life, some people put their, their chairs at the back of the, of the ship in order to see where they've been. Other put their deck chairs at the front of the boat to see where they're going. Charlie, where's your deck chair? And Charlie's thought about it for a moment and says, uh, I can't even get my deck chair unfolded. Uh, sometimes we feel like that, don't we? We are not real sure where we're going in life. We're struggling along. And so as we're thinking this, through this series of what every Christian must know about different things, I thought uh, this is the next to last sermon on this, this theme that we're looking at. I needed to give a, a sermon on what every Christian must know about the Christian life. And so as I was thinking about that, I could think of no better passage in all the Word of God than Colossians chapter 3 to focus our attention on. Uh, we looked at this on Wednesday night as well, so some of you are prepared to think deeper about this passage. But in Colossians chapter 3, uh, uh, and a matter of fact, the whole book of Colossians is all about Christ. There's, a, if I count it correctly, 77 references directly to Jesus Christ in this book. Uh, all, it, it begins by talking about our maturity in Christ in chapter 1, verses 1 to 14. And then it talks about the person and work of Christ and gives us a great theology of Jesus Christ in chapter 1, verses 15 to 23. And then it talks about the mystery of Christ in chapter 1, 24 to 2, 7. And then in chapter 2, verses 8 to 23, he talks about distractions, things that distract us from our centrality of Christ. And then starting with chapter 3, he begins to apply all this to our lives and talks about our life in Christ. And so that is where we are today. We're looking at this final section. He's done talking about the theology of Christ and, and the details about Christ and the distractions that often come into our life as Christians. And he's ready to apply all this to our Christian life and tell us how the Lord would want us to live for him. And as he does that, he gives application for the rest of the book. And he begins general application. And he gets more specific as he goes throughout the rest of the, of the book. And, and as he does so, we get so much here. We're going to hit the highlights tonight, this morning. Uh, it's not night yet. Uh, so we'll hit the highlights this morning. This is a primer, a primer for the Christian life. The rest of Scripture, all of Scripture, in one way or the other, uh, informs this section. But this might be your, your, your highlights, your previews of coming attractions, your uh, table of contents, whatever you want to use. It is this passage of Scripture details for us what it, how it is that God wants us to live His life, and, and the rest of Scripture fills it out. And so as we think about that, what is it that every Christian must know about the Christian life? And the first thing we'll mention is that every Christian must know that the Christian life is centered on Jesus Christ. It's centered on Christ. He says in verse 1 of chapter 3, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on the things that are on the earth. So everything begins in the Christian life with our relationship with Him. If we get that wrong, we get everything else wrong. Nothing else really matters. All the details and all the things we might do in a religious sense or Christian sense or church-wise, whatever, it's all going to be skewed. It's all going to be out of whack if we don't get this right, that the Christian life is about Jesus Christ. It's a relationship with the Son of God, and that's what the Christian life is about. As Paul turns to this, this subject, the practical applications of these truths, 
uh, there are three aspects about our new life in Christ he wants us to know about. He starts with our position, how important this is. We must know who we are before we can live, know how we are to live. So in the very first line he says, therefore if you've been raised up with Christ. And the word if there is the idea that since you have, if you have, and we trust you have, since you have been raised up with Christ, that's our position, that's who we are, we are raised up with Jesus Christ. We have to know who we are before we know how to live. Uh, if you are a woman who's had a baby, the moment you have that baby, you are a mother. That is a role that you have. That is, that is something that it can be changed. It's true. You're a mother. And uh, you uh, can, can now be a good mother. You don't have to be, necessarily. You should be. I hope you are. But, but your role is now a mother. That's who you are. And it's time to step up and be the mother that God wants you to be. So we, th we think of that same thing about us. What is it that we know about us? When verse, I just read to you in verse 1, it says that we've been raised up with Christ. But drop down to verse 3, before we're raised, we died. He says, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And so our position in Christ is that we have died to what we used to be. We've died to our former way of life. We're not what we used to be. And we've been raised with Christ to a new life. We are now living a life that we never lived before. And that's who we are. We are dead to our, our former way of life. We are alive with Christ to the life that now he gives us. That's the Christian life. And as, a pro, as important as that is, we now know as new creatures, we begin the process of being, we are transformed. Let's start with that. We've been transformed. We've been transformed by what Christ has done. And you might say to yourself, I don't feel very transformed. I still battle with certain sins. I don't always have a good day. There's times when I'm quite confused and I don't do very well. But that isn't the subject yet. The subject is, who are you? If you're a Christian, you have died to your former way of life. You have been raised to a new life in Christ. That is true. Whether you feel like it, whether you're living it out or not, that is true. We don't, we don't live by our feelings. We don't, we don't base our life on what we feel we are or, or even think we are. We base our life on who we are, the truth about who we are. And we have, been, we have died to our former life. We've been raised with Christ. So that's our position. Everything begins there. You must know who you are in Christ before you ever can progress further in Christ. And a lot of Christians never go anywhere because they don't understand that simple truth. They don't understand who they really are in Jesus Christ. And so they don't move forward. So start with that, folks. If you're struggling in that area, if you're in Christ, then you are, you are in Him, and nothing can change that. that. That's where you begin the position. But then secondly, he begins to talk about our response to that, the fact that we're raised with Christ. And he gives us two. He says in verse 1, since we have been raised with Christ, first of all, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand, of God. Keep seeking is a present imperative. It's a commandment. You are in Christ, now keep seeking Christ. That, that is ongoing, constant lifestyle of seeking Christ as our great treasure. And you might say to yourself, well, I, Christ found me or I found Christ, however you want to say it. I already have Christ. Why do I keep seeking Christ? Because you never get enough of Christ. Uh, the more you know Christ, the more you want to know about Christ. You never get to the depths of Christ. You never get to the heights of Christ. You never exhaust who he is. Uh, the more you know about him, the, the more you are going to want to know him, right? 
And that's true of lots of things we enjoy. I had a friend some years ago who absolutely loved sports. Sports was his whole life. And he, um, he, was, he was at the age where he wasn't playing many sports any longer, but he watched sports constantly on TV. If he was home, there was a game on. He watched every game he could on baseball. Uh, then when baseball season was over, he switched over to football or basketball or whatever around. If he ran out of all that, he went to hockey. He didn't even understand hockey. Nobody understands hockey. But, uh, but nevertheless, he would, he, I think he'd watch cricket if he had to. As long as there was a sports event on TV, he would do it. And if he ran out of something on TV, he went down and watched Little League games of people he didn't even know just so he could watch sports. He was enamored with sports. He loved sports. Sports was his life. Well, I don't want to psychoanalyze that guy, but I know this, that ought to be true of our life with Christ. We ought to be so absorbed with Christ, so enamored with Christ, so in love with Christ that we never can get enough of Him. We never exhaust Him. We, we never come to the place where we don't want more of Him. We are seeking Christ once we have found Christ. Now the second thing he tells us to do is set your mind on things above. Set your mind on things above, not on the things on the earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So we must not only seek Christ, we must thank Christ. That may sound diffi uh, difficult at first, but consider this, we always think about what we love, don't we? We always think about the things that are important to us. Uh, if you're interested right now in buying a new car, uh, then uh, you don't have a hard time thinking about it. You'll get your magazines out, you'll go on the internet, you'll search for this, that, or the other. Uh, you'll, you'll talk about it, you'll talk to your friends about their cars and why they bought their cars and why they, what they don't like about them. It's all about cars because that's what you're interested in. That's important to you right now. And so you're talking about cars. What, same thing happens when you fall in love. When you fall in love with somebody, nobody has to make you think about them, right? Now you don't have to go read a book. How can I think about this person I'm in love with. You don't have to take seminars. You don't have to go to, to Mike's classes on counseling to say, here's, here's some five steps on how to think about somebody you love. You don't have to do that because if you love somebody, you think about them, don't you? Uh, when Marsha and I had our first date, uh, that night after the first date, I couldn't sleep that night. <laughs> and so I assumed the Lord wanted me to marry her. <laughs> Now, since then, I've grown a little bit. I'm not quite so mystical, and I don't think the Lord was telling me to marry her, but it did work out quite well. You know, I couldn't sleep that night. Fifty years later, I still don't sleep very well. But, but there's a lot of reasons now I don't. But that doesn't mean I don't think about my wife more than anybody else in my world, because I love her. I don't have any problem thinking about what I love. Do you? I, I highly doubt it. And that's why he's saying here, set your minds on these things because, and that's not a hard task because you love Christ and you love the things of Christ and you love the word of Christ. To not think about Christ for a Christian is a foreign thing. It should be odd not to be thinking about Christ as much as we can. So we're preoccupied with the things we love and the things that matter to us. One of the axioms of life is that the Christian is preeminently occupied with Jesus Christ. We think about Christ, we gravitate towards Christ, we love Christ, we want to serve Christ. It's all wrapped around Jesus Christ. And this passage of Scripture makes that completely clear to us. You know, the, the thing is, and here, here's the thing, we're easily distracted people, aren't we? We get distracted by so many things, and including thinking about Christ. 
Uh, I've had a lot of different things I was passionate about in my life, things I I was interested in that I've lost interest in. Matter of fact, just a, a, a perusal of my garage tells me about my past passions. Now, we got a garage where we can actually get the cars in there. Do you? I mean, I'm just, just saying. And so our garage is not full of stuff, necessarily. But around the perimeter, I can see all the things that at one time I was passionate about and thought about and engaged in that I am no longer. It kind of wears me out sometimes. I, I see in one corner my tennis racket. No tennis anymore. Racquetball racket. I see that too. My baseball gloves. Uh, my, uh, my golf equipment my fishing gear, my woodworking equipment, all these things at one time I was really into. And I don't have, I'm not into those things anymore. I got distracted by other things. You stop thinking about these things, you stop getting, being interested. But the one passion we must not get distracted from is Jesus Christ. We must continue that. And so he tells us here, this is a command that we are to set our minds on Christ. Never allow anything to distract us from him. And that is what he'd been talking about, by the way, in chapter 2 before he got here. But now he moves on. He's talked about our position in Christ. He's talked about our response to that and how we are to live. Next, he talks about our motivation. And we drop down to to verse 3 and 4, and we look at two motivations. Our present life and our future life. Our present life, verse 4. When Christ, who is our life, and most of us who have repeated that phrase throughout the years, absolutely love it, don't we? What a, what a, what a summarization of, of who we are in Christ. Christ, who is our life. What a joy to consider that. Without him, we are nothing. It's like the solar, solar system. Everything orbits around the sun. The sun is central. Jesus Christ is central. I like what uh, Paul Tripp said in one of his books. He says, If I am seeking life outside of the one who is my life, I'm effectively committing spiritual suicide. That's a pretty good quote to ponder. So our present life, Christ is our life. Secondly, notice our future life. He goes on in verse 4, and he says, When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. So he goes right to the future when Christ comes back, the revelation of Christ. And we know at that point Christ comes back, right? And we'll talk about that in our last message on what every Christian needs to know about the future. And we'll talk about that a bit. But we know he's coming back and he will be revealed for all he is and all his glory. But you may not have thought much about this passage here. We will also be revealed with him in glory. Uh, we, will, we too will be seen for what we are. We'll join him in glory. And, and when we do, and this is why we had to sing the song. It's in my notes. When we do, with the author of that great hymn, which is one of my very favorites, we will sing, I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned unclean. And the last verse goes like this, When when with the ransomed in glory his face I at life shall see, t'will be my joy through the ages to sing of his love for me. Oh, how marvelous, oh, how wonderful, And my song shall ever be, oh, how marvelous, oh, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. Doesn't that speak to your heart? I trust that it does. So the first thing you need to know about the Christian life is it is all centered around Christ. If your Christian life, your Christian experience is not centered around Christ, then you're not getting the point of the Christian life. And I hope today you do. 
Hope today you go back to this passage and others that, that point you to the, the, the centrality of Jesus Christ in everything. Even our Bible studies, even our ministries, even our churches, it has to be all rev, re, revolving around Jesus Christ. It must be. The second thing he moves to, though, is the Christian life, and you must know this, is marked by progressive transformation. Sometimes we call that progressive sanctification. I'm just going to change the word a little bit. A progressive transformation. Yes, we have been transformed. Yes, we're new creatures in Christ. But we're not done yet, right? Uh, we're still a work in progress. And we will be until we are revealed with Him in glory. And so until that happens, the Lord is in the process of changing us to conformity to the image of Himself. And as He does that, we, we look once again at this, this issue and we start with our position, verse 5 and 9, and then we move to our practice. Our position, who we are. So he goes back to that. If we're going to live the Christian life, we must know who we are in him. So verse 5a, first part says, Therefore consider the members of your earthly body as dead. And then he lists a bunch of sins. And then drop down to verse 9. And he says, do not lie to whether none of the sense you laid aside the old self with its evil practices. Now what I want you to look at carefully here is he's not telling us to do, to, to, to do this. He's not telling us to lay aside our old self. He is telling us it's already been done. That's our position. You must get that. Christ has already worked in your life in such a way that the old self is done away with. You don't live the way you used to live. Those passions and desires no longer dictate how you live. You have died to that. Therefore, the question comes, how are we to live? He goes on to verse 10. He says, and you have put on the new self. Now this is a statement. This is not a command. You have put on the new self. You're changed, folks. Get that. If you don't get that, you get nothing. In the Christian life, you have been transformed. You have been changed. You are a new creature in Christ. It's, it's a done deal. You have put on Christ, who is being renewed to a, new, to, uh, to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. Now this gets a little complicated. If we're new creations, then why, what needs to be renewed? He says we're being renewed here to a true knowledge of Christ, the one who saved us. What is he talking about? Here's, here's his point. We're new, but we don't know very much yet. We're new, but we haven't changed practically all that much yet. When Christ saves us, I'm going to say, he's going to change our attitudes. He's going to change our desires. He's going to give us a, a desire for Christ. He's going to give us a desire to want to live for him. Many things happen at that moment. But practically speaking, there's a lot of work to be done. And he speaks here of that knowledge. You see, according to Romans 12, 1 and 2, we're transformed by the renewing of our minds. Our minds have to be reprogrammed. They have to be changed. And they be, are changed through, through the input of the Word of God, uh, either by someone teaching or by our own study. And that is, begins the process of changing us. And he's using a picture of a baby here. A baby's born... And that baby has all the parts that the parents have, a body and with all the parts. That baby also has a soul, an inward nature. And so in that sense, the baby is complete, but not complete, because from the very moment it's born, it begins to learn, doesn't it? 
It learns how to eat. It learns how to do this, that, and the other. And for the rest of its life, it'll be learning, growing in knowledge. And hopefully, if taught the things of God, that little one will grow up to be one who understands the ways of God and wants to live that way. But that doesn't happen in a lot of lives. A lot of people learn the wrong stuff. And that's why we have such a confused world today. Even among Christians many times, we haven't learned the right stuff. And so he says it's going to be renewed by the true knowledge. The true knowledge. The, the perfect knowledge is found only in Christ. That, that is what transforms us. That's what begins to change us. And as that baby grows up with, the, with good knowledge, it, it changes and matures. As you and I grow up with the true knowledge of Christ, we, we slowly but surely change and mature. I know sometimes a, a brand new Christian just feels way behind the, the ball, you know, and we're way back there. Don't, don't give up. Just keep on rolling. Keep on progressing. The Lord is in the process of changing us. Now, secondly, that, that's our position, who we are, but, but what is our practice? Uh, how are we to live? And going back to, to these verses, we see in verse 5, he begins to talk about the fact that we've laid aside these old, this old self. It's gone. But now we are going to have to be dealing with these issues of growing up. And so even as Christians, with Christ in our life, Christ is the center of our life, with the Word of God, with a, with a church involvement and in all these things, we still battle sins, don't we? And Scripture never deny that, never pulls its punches. And so he begins to talk here in verse 5 about some of the sins that can affect the Christian that we have to be on guard against. And as we look at these things, we realize that out of the position of who we are, out of the fact that we have been changed and transformed, we no longer need to live this way any longer. So in verse 5, he begins to tick off some of these things. He starts with moral issues. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire. I don't have to tell you how much in moral freefall that our country is. That's evident to us almost every day. Every time we read anything or turn on the news or anything, we see the moral freefall in America. Things that, that used to be center, considered sin by almost everybody, we now celebrate and have parades for. Isn't that amazing? We see that in our lives. But you know what? Uh, scriptures aren't surprised by that. God's not surprised. Uh, we no longer live in a Victorian age, if we ever did. We live in a Corinthian age. Go to the scriptures. You want to know how bad it was? You think it's bad now, morally, and it's not so good. But it hasn't, it's been worse. Go back and read the book of Judges. Go back and read much of the Old Testament. And you see the awfulness of sin taking over the lives of God's people. People who should have known better who decided to live with their way instead of God's. Go to the New Testament. Every book of the New Testament will deal in some way with sinful issues that we have to deal with and false teachings. The book of Corinthians is a perfect example. Here's this, this young church, six, seven years old, and it has all sorts of moral issues infiltrating the church there. And so we're closer to the Corinthian age today than we are to some kind of Victorian age. But God didn't, God's not surprised by that. And so he warns us about these issues of morality and impurity and passion. He tells us those are, should not be part of our lives. Why? Not because just they're bad, but because that's not who we are. That's not who we are. We're not that person anymore. 
Then he moves on to the issue of greed. He said evil desire and greed. Greed is, he calls uh, adultery, idolatry in verse 5. Uh, greed is idolatry because it's self-absorption. If there is a God in America that is challenging the true God, it's the God of self. Self is on the throne of most people's lives, including many Christians. When self is on the throne, when self determines how we live, then we are idolaters because we're not following the true God in our life. And greed points that out because of our, of our greed, our desires, our, our wants so dominate our lives that many of us have little time to think about Christ. So he speaks of greed that's substituted for Christ or selfishness. Verse 8, he moves on to anger. But, but now you also put them all aside. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, all those are anger issues. Why do we get angry? Uh, we get angry because uh, we're self-absorbed. It's all about me. Something doesn't go our way. Somebody steps on our toes. Somebody bumps into us in the wrong way. Somebody looks at us wrong. And we get upset. We get our feelings hurt. And we get upset. And we get angry. And we throw a little fit. Uh, almost everybody with a newer car has some kind of a, you know alarm system on that car, right? And uh, I've never known anybody. Maybe you can tell me afterwards. I've ne- you're supposed to be on there so if somebody tries to steal your car... Uh, it'll go off and beep and make noises and shoot lights and rockets in the air or whatever so that you know that somebody, uh, get away from my car, you're trying to steal. I've never known anybody whose car has been stolen or anybody attempt to steal a car. Pro- I'm sure it's happened. I've never known of it. But every one of us have had the pleasure of getting that alarm system accidentally set off, haven't you? And when that happens, if you're like me, I'm running around like a goose. All, everybody's looking at me. And I don't know how to turn it off. I really don't know what to do. I'm just in a quandary. It, uh, anger is kind of like that. Anger is the alarm system. Things are going on and we're, we're not really looking inside too much. And then something bumps us. Somebody offends us. And bam, we're angry. We get our backs up. And this is alarm system telling us that all is not well in your heart. And then sometimes we don't know how to turn it off. There's another problem. He says you don't have to be that person any longer either. Some of you, some of you grew up with an angry home. Some of you grew up with the propensity to be a very angry person. And you shouldn't be carrying that into the Christian life. Now, obviously, if that's been your background, you're going to battle with that. Much more than some sweet person who never gets upset about hardly anything. That might be your besetting sin. That might be something you really have to deal with. But there should be growth. There should be, as the years go by, we should be changes even there so that we don't do what we used to do. Why? Because we have been changed. We're new creatures in Christ. We're not that person any longer. Unfortunately, our anger is often revealed in our speech. And so he says, an abusive speech from your mouth, remove it, because what is in our heart often comes out in our speech, doesn't it? And that reveals who we are. It shows us who we are, what we need to deal with in Christ. And so as we think about the Christian life, we must know that it's centered around Christ. It's, it's Christ. Christ is our life. Secondly, we must know that he is in the process of transforming us into his image. He's at work in us. He's going to bring every tool uh, to us. He's going to bring his word. He's going to bring the spirit. He's going to bring other people. He's going to bring the church. He's going to bring even our sins to bear 
to, to make us realize that we need to continue to grow in Him. Don't get discouraged if you fail, because you will fail. Don't get discouraged if you look around and think somebody's a lot better than you. They probably are. Who knows? Who knows? You don't know. They might be a, a totally different person than you know. Who knows? Who cares? The issue is you are you, and the Lord is at work in changing you into the image of Jesus Christ. Work with Him as a Christian life. A third thing we'll look at today, and the final thing, is our Christian life will be exposed by our relationships. By our relationships. It's not enough that we self-evaluate. Uh, our lives will be tested. Folks, now listen. Our lives will be tested by our relationships. Our relationships in our home, our relationships at work, our relationships at church and our neighborhoods, our relationships will tell on us. And he is saying here that as, as new creatures in Christ, our relationships have fundamentally changed and as in practice they need to continue to, to be transformed and changed because the Christian life is exposed by our relationships. They give us the evidence. They give us the evidence of how, of how our knowledge is being changed into conformity with Christ. And he talks about a number of pieces of evidence, a number of relationships here that's going to point out whether we're growing in our knowledge of Christ. First of all, we, uh, we have replaced our prejudices with Christ. Verse 11 is a, is a verse that most people just dismiss. They, they don't even read it. It doesn't seem important. But it says, a renewal in which there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, or Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, scavian, slave and free men, but Christ is all and in all. Now you say, well, you know, I'm not too concerned about these things, but God is. You see, we're all born naturally prejudiced. We're all born thinking that we're superior to others. We're all born with this, with this system within us that has to change. And he's saying here when the early church, when it came together, in this first century church, there were Jews that brought their traditions with them and there were Gentiles who did. There were Jews who had ideas about, about uh, their, what, how they should worship God and the, the Gentiles had theirs as well. They had different interests and so forth and they came together and that brought about conflict. And that's what happens when different types of people come together. It brings about conflict. And the Church of Christ, I find this interesting because a fad in, a, in the past and still there to some degree is let's go to church with people like us. Let's get together with everybody who's just like us and thinks like us and reasons like us. But Christ did not put his church together like that. The, the wonder of the Church of Christ is that we come from different backgrounds. We come from different employment Backgrounds. We have different ethnicities. We have different interests and from different neighborhoods and economic status. We all gather together in one body of Christ. Will that cause conflict? Sometimes it will. How are we to deal with that? That's what he's talking about here. And when we forget that we're one in Christ, we tend to fracture. So that leads to a more positive evidence that Christ is changing us, is that our heart is being changed to become more and more gracious. In verse 12 he says this, So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. 
So an evidence that the Lord is at work in your life is that you are gradually, at least, becoming more this kind of person. You gradually, slowly but surely, the Lord is, boy, is changing us and giving us a compassionate heart, a gracious heart, a kind heart, a humble heart, a patient heart. It, that takes the transforming power of the Holy Spirit to do that. And He's promised to be at work in those things with us. In verse 13, he goes a little further. He says, bearing with one another, forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. He goes on in this verse to talk about bearing with others who have bumped us, uh, putting up with people who are difficult, and more than that, to forgive them when they harmed us, as Christ has forgiven you. What a... What a verse of scripture. How important it is that we become people that forgive other people. In Southern View over here, most of you know our name of the church is Southern View Chapel. Some of you may not know it's because we used to be in Southern View. And we moved down the street here and didn't change the name. So uh, somebody wanted to name it Abbey Road because of Abbey Road over here. You, you Beatle fans would get that. The rest of you wouldn't. But at any rate, um, in Southern View they have a wonderful thing. I think they still do it. Every year, once a, day, once a year, they have a day that somebody's called Junk Away Day. You can put anything you have out by the side of the road and Southern View will pick it up. You, you can put out your old refrigerators, your appliances, your tires, your children, anything you want. You can <laughs> stick them out there, you know. And anything, you, you can put anything out there you want. Just stick them out there and they will take it away. You know, a lot of Christians need a Junk Away Day. We need to look at the resentments and the bitterness and the hard feelings and the lack of forgiveness from things that have been truly done to us by others and we need to take them out by our spiritual road and dump them and leave them there and don't go back and get them. One of the most interesting things I thought about Junkaway Day when we lived there for several years, probably lived there 10 or 12 years is that as soon as the people put everything out by the road, you remember this, some of you? Pickup trucks from all over town started showing up. I mean, they were picking this stuff up, they were taking it, taking it with them, and half the stuff was gone the next day. You know, people wanted their junk. Folks, if you, in the spiritual sense, if you dumped some sin issues, if you've dumped some resentment, don't go back with your spiritual pickup truck and pick up another roll of resentment. Seek forgiveness. That's part of the Christian life. Lack of forgiveness doesn't hurt the other person nearly as much as it hurts you. And it hurts the cause of Christ. It's not what Christians should be like. Forgiveness. Verse 14, he goes on to another relationship, and that's love. And we're, like I said, we're giving, we're giving just an overview here. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. That covers everything that your overcoat in this metaphor. Verse 15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. Number four is the peace of Christ should rule. The peace of Christ should give us harmony in our lives. We should no longer be at war with God. In our hearts, we should no longer be at war with other people. The word rule here, it literally means umpire. 
The umpire calls the shots. When I was a boy, I'd play a lot of sandlock baseball and stuff, get our friends together, and we divided up teams and we played baseball. But because we had no umpire, if we had a, a disagreement over a person being out or not, we always had a little argument about that because we didn't have an umpire. But when I played organized sports, you had an umpire. And the umpire said, out or safe. You may not agree with him, but he made the final arbitration. And so the peace of Christ should be ruling in our hearts. It should be ruling with our relationships with other people as well. And then he says, let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. Number five, to, to dwell richly is the word that means to be at home in. Isn't it great to, great to go somewhere and feel at home? Somebody comes to your house and you say, make yourself at home. And they immediately go to the refrigerator and eat your lunch, you know. Well, you told them, right? They felt comfortable to, to, to be at home. I love it when somebody says, I feel at home at the church here. It's comfortable. Let the word of Christ be comfortable in your life. Let it be at home in your life. Because it is the center of all we do. Everything we do is wrapped around the word of God that he's given us. Even, he says, in verse 16, our singing. In one of the two passages in all the epistles about music. It says, with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Even our music must be biblically saturated. Uh, far more than, it, music isn't given to us by God to entertain us or to give us a, a wonderful feeling. We might have those feelings, but the primary purpose of Christian music is to teach us the things of God. And so we must also have our, our music biblically sound. And then finally he says in verse 17, he says this, Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to him, to God the Father. We must live for the glory of God. This is the all-encompassing commandment that he gives us here. Living for the glory of God with thankful hearts. That's our life. I went to a Bible conference once. I think it was a shepherd's conference out in California uh, at, uh, at Grace Community Church there. And a bunch of us went out for supper after at one of the breaks. And I realized at this hamburger joint we were at that I had forgotten to take off my name tag. And so it said where I was at. It had my name on it. And I immediately thought, I'm going to have to behave because I'm now representing Jesus Christ. Because these people in this community know what this conference is about. And I got my name right there. He probably even said I was a pastor. Now I must behave. All right. Well, I don't know if I was behaving before or not. I don't know. But I definitely knew at that point I needed to represent Jesus Christ. Because as this passage tells us, all we do in word or deed is for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Folks, that is the Christian life. This is just a primer. This is just opening a door to, to what all the scripture tells us about living for Jesus Christ. But these are some of the basics that we must know about the Christian life. Join me in prayer. Father, we thank you now this morning for the word of God, for the truth that you've given us, for the Christian life, and most of all, for Jesus Christ, who is our life. How we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.